0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I was just thinking this morning about dogs. Yeah? I've got a dog. I'm a big dog fan. Y'all don't have a dog. No, we're, we're
0: a cat household.
1: Well, I was thinking about how dogs, to many people, feel like such morally pure creatures. They're sweet, innocent, loving. Like, my dog seems so sweet and innocent to me, and this is really incongruous with the evidence of my senses, (laughs) because consciously I know that he thirsts for blood. Literally the happiest day I can ever, like, the happiest I've ever seen my dog was the morning he successfully killed a baby chipmunk in our backyard. <laughs> he, like, got it in its jaws and he shook it to death. And then he looked up with such joy in his eyes, his tail wagging so hard, he seemed like he might break in half. And yet he still somehow seemed to me like this pure, blameless, innocent creature. Uh And in a way he was, right, because dogs, you know, they're just following their instincts. It's not like they know better than to do that but i think one difference in how we think about dogs that do destructive things versus how we think about like people that do destructive things is that you usually think of a dog as something that can't lie to you
0: right this is this is true yeah i mean cats dogs uh, any animal you encounter they are an honest and pure version of what they are what else could they do being what they are
1: yeah but it's like it's like lying is sort of the the film that coats every other bad thing we think about uh, when we think about people. Like all the ways that people can be bad somehow involve lying, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's this thing that that plants this seed of distrust between people. Uh, I know you've probably – you can think of times where you have this totally otherwise good relationship with a person. But if you find out they've lied to you one time, it really – Undercuts the whole thing. It puts this poison pill in the relationship, right?
0: Yeah, I mean with with cats, for instance, having more experience with cats, you think about the times that your cat has been "quote unquote" bad. Yeah, generally, this is a case where the animal has it either has not behaved in a way that uh, fits your altered uh, version of their existence. Mm -hmm. Like you've taken this animal that needs to live outside and hunt small creatures, and you have made it live indoors. In an environment mostly devoid of small creatures, and of of course it's going to be crazy. Of course it's going to run around and scratch things inappropriately and hunt your feet uh, in the uh, the mornings and the evening, that sort of thing. And we get mad at them and we say bad cat or and then we say bad dog, but really they are just being what they are, and there's not there's no deception going on. It's just. Uh, a pure act by a creature that cannot be anything else.
1: I have this thought a lot. I thought like I think even when Charlie's done something bad and I have to yell at him, I feel so guilty having to yell at him or or discipline him or whatever, and I always think at least he'll never lie to me. <laughs> but despite how strongly I feel this, I think maybe it isn't really true because dogs might not have complex enough cognition to really understand the fact that they're lying or understand what they're doing. But just as one example, so if my dog Charlie has been fed dinner by one member of the household, he will sometimes seem to try to convince a different member of the household that he hasn't had dinner
0: yet. Ah, yeah, my my cat does a a similar thing.
1: And maybe I'm just projecting imagined motivations or strategies on like a generalized begging behavior. But it, it certainly seems real. It feels real. And if it were real, if he were actively trying to deceive us and cheat another meal out of us, he would not be alone in the
0: animal world. True, but on the on the other hand, like a dog's just going to eat whenever it can eat. Right. A cat's going to eat whenever it can eat, even if it just ends up puking because it's eaten too much. Well, whether
1: or not that's actually a good example, the point is that animals other than humans absolutely can lie and deceive. Some make an entire way of life out of it. Many can't live without it. Um, And I guess we should be clear that animal deception isn't exactly the same as human lying, right? There's some kind of difference there that's important. Well, we're certainly
0: not talking about a conscious act. Right. We're, We're talking about something that's more primitive, something that really, I think, is beneath the surface of human deception, like the, the the natural evolved action that our human lies are just a, a human exaggeration of.
1: Yeah, exactly, and we so we don't want to draw a one to one comparison between animal deception and human lying, but it is interesting sometimes how instinctual animal deception tactics often take place for like the same reasons and the same types of motivations. That you see humans consciously engaging in deception with other members of their own species. You know, creatures deceive, whether by instinct or whether consciously, in order to gain advantage,
0: right? Yeah. For food, for mating privileges, for just pure survival. Uh, Though they're the kind of thing that in human activity, they just sort of spring out of the moment. But in the natural world... Uh, we see them emerge via natural selection uh, over vast periods of time.
1: Right. And so there is this vast world of animal deception to explore, and that's what we're going to do today. We've decided for today's episode just to take a few of our favorite examples of interesting, amazing, sometimes funny animal deception and talk about them. And if this episode works out, maybe we will maybe we can make an ongoing series of this, uh, kind of like our Dangerous Foods episodes.
0: Yeah, because we're, we're going to get into a lot of mimicry, of course. And mimicry is probably one of my, my favorite topics in biology, uh, on, on one hand, because it almost always lines up with some sort of a, a, a fictitious monster, right? There's so many monsters that pretend to be something that they are not. Usually, they're, they're pretending to be a human, right? But it matches up with so many examples, so many just wonderfully um, grotesque and intricate examples of creatures pretending to be other creatures or somehow uh, mimicking a behavior.
1: Well, you can really see in all of these stories of human or monsters that pretend to be humans, the shape-shifting monsters. You can see things that look like biological training algorithms, Mm -hmm. like when you have stories about the succubus having like messed up looking feet that you should be able to notice so that you can avoid the succubus. That is a fictional story about an imagined monster But it feels very much like the way that there are going to be deceptive, aggressive mimicry examples in the natural world where an animal has to become attuned to one particular part of the body of another animal to understand the difference between it and the harmless animal or the predator or whatever that it's pretending to
0: be. Indeed. Now, now I like this approach for the podcast because there are so many wonderful examples of deception and mimicry uh, in the animal kingdom, uh, especially. So we could just do episode after episode looking at some of these examples.
1: In fact, with this first example I want to talk about, we could probably do a whole series of episodes just on this one type of bird. But I want to start with this example of the cuckoos. Now, Robert, I'm sure you've touched on cuckoos a bit in the podcast before, right?
0: Yes, we did cover cuckoos in an older episode, but it's just such a fascinating biological example. Uh, Let's definitely revisit it here.
1: We we are cuckoo for parasites. (laughs) So cuckoos are a family of birds. There are more than 130 species of cuckoos, more than 50 of which are brood parasites. So here's the lowdown on brood parasitism. Evolution selects for you to have as many future descendants as possible, but... For some species, it takes a lot of work to raise them. So what if you could trick another animal into raising your offspring as its own so that you don't have to put the investment in? So brood parasites develop biological strategies for exactly this, to sneak their young into the care of some other animal so they can avoid the resource investment of raising them. So in the case of cuckoos and some other avian brood parasites, this usually breaks down into a three-stage strategy. The first stage is you want to get access to the unguarded nest of a host bird. Second step is lay your eggs among the eggs of the host. And then the third step is often kill or remove the other eggs or siblings from the nest. And this is to maximize all of the uh, parental attention that's going to go to the parasitic invader.
0: And on paper, just looking at the pure economics of survival, this... This makes sense.
1: Yeah, and it, it often leads to this evolutionary arms race between parasites and hosts, with the host birds evolving defenses against the cuckoos, and the cuckoos evolving better and better tactics for their brood parasitism game. Example, here's a question. If you're a cuckoo and you want to gain access to a local nest... How do you get to it without the parent bird catching you in the act? Cuckoos are actually not especially strong or agile birds, and they can be injured or killed by attacks from host parents. So if you were a cuckoo, you'd need some way of getting the host parent safely away from the nest while you lay your eggs in there. So how do you do that? Well, some cuckoos appear to have evolved a really ingenious solution to this. They evolved to look like predators, specifically raptors like sparrowhawks. So the cuckoos look like sparrowhawks in several ways. They're uh, similar in size and shape like having a long body and then similar shaped wings and a tail. And also in the plumage, they've got these uh, similar colorations to the sparrowhawks, but then also barred patterns on the plumage of the underside of their bodies. Uh, and then also I've read that their their swift direct flight has a role to play in their mimicry of hawks. So uh, you've got this barred pattern on the plumage. If you're a hawk, a barred pattern is probably useful because it's camouflage, right? It helps you hide among the branches and leaves so you can get close to your prey. But if you're a cuckoo and you look like a predatory hawk, you can get birds to think you are a predatory hawk, mm-hmm. meaning they fly away and avoid you. You drive the host parents away and then you gain access to the nest. Of course, then you've still got this back and forth of the evolutionary arms race going on. So some common hosts of parasitic cuckoos like Reed warblers or uh, Acrocephalus uh, scirpaceus, they've developed the ability to tell the difference between cuckoos and genuine hawk predators. So you put a stuffed sparrowhawk in front of them and they will fly away. They'll avoid it. But if you put a stuffed cuckoo in front of them, they'll often mob it and go nuts attacking it. And then again, the trickery of avian brood parasites can go in exactly the opposite direction, driving the evolutionary arms race to the other end of the spectrum. So to to cite a paper here from Proceedings of the Royal Society B in uh, 2015 by Feeney et al., the authors tested the hypothesis that female cuckoo finches or Anomalospiza imberbis, uh, that this is another parasitic uh, bird, a brood parasite bird, that they aggressively mimic harmless bird species in order to un- – to gain undetected access to the nests of their hosts, which are tawny-flanked prinia. So under this hypothesis, uh, the parasites disguise themselves as a harmless bird called Southern Red Bishops. And the results seem to bear this out by showing that the cuckoo-finch plumage pattern was closer to that of the southern red bishop than it was to the parasitic finch's own closest relatives. Also, the uh, authors noted that the host birds, the prinia, were equally aggressive to the parasites and to actual southern red bishops, actually harmless birds. Essentially, this is kind of like if burglars uh, one time got into your house by disguising themselves as the milkman, and then after that, every time you see the milkman, you scream and attack
0: him. Yeah, and of course, it's important to to note the obvious in all of this and that is that this is taking place at the speed of natural selection. So when we see the development of of, of coloration that matches a predatory bird, this is something where the, the cuckoos that had... Uh, uh, coloration that lined up with predatory birds, they were the more successful. They were the ones that were producing offspring.
1: Right. And it's still in all these cases going to be a question of percentages. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like something is going to work or fail every time. It's going to be a question of how often it works.
0: Yeah. With kind of a, a tug back and forth, as you've explained here, I can't help but think of, say, fashions and trends here. It's like, oh, predatory uh, cuckoos are in this season. Uh, and then the next season, oh and now now it's the, the, the ones that look like harmless birds. That's what's, uh, what's actually getting success and then it's uh, having an impact on the subsequent generations. Right.
1: But in in real time, of course, what it's going to be is mostly it's going to be divergent. like mm-hmm. you'll you'll pick a niche one or the other and then split off into these different paths over time. But yeah, you could see potentially in the future the paths converging or going back in the opposite direction depending on what's beneficial. Now we could probably do a whole series of episodes just on the arms race between avian brood parasites on their, and their hosts, like disguising the eggs to look like host eggs so the host parents don't roll them out of the nest. And then once the egg does hatch, a cuckoo chick will often immediately push the other eggs out of the nest so that it alone can benefit from its host parents feeding and protection. And sometimes people note the, like how ridiculous this can look to outside observers where like a tiny parent mm-hmm. will be feeding a gigantic cuckoo baby as Mm -hmm. if it thinks it's its own young um and and so like (laughs) it is getting extremely large and fat but it looks weird to us because we don't see bird chicks the same way birds see bird chicks like birds see bird chicks through these certain types of things they recognize like the shape of the open mouth Mm -hmm. and and that being a trigger for their instinctual feeding behaviors but I also want to mention a very different and very amazing kind of brood parasite that is also found in nature: the ant queen with butterfly wings. Ooh, okay. So, I've got a strategy to improve my lot in life. Let me know what you think about okay, this. Okay, let's let's hear it. Okay, I'm going to walk up to the gate outside the White House with a suit on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm going to say, "Hey, I'm the president." <laughs> And I'll, like, maybe I'll do a voice impression of the president. Okay. And then hopefully they'll be like, Mr. President, what are you doing out here? Let's get you inside and get you uh, all kinds of luxury items.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, it seems like people have gained access to the White House with, with, with less uh, of a complex plan in mind. But uh, <laughs> I see some problems with this one. Yeah, you don't think it's going to work? Well, you're not going to look like the president. You're just saying you're the president. And uh, unless you just caught everybody unawares, uh, they're probably not going to let you in.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely true. Based on how humans identify other humans, that would probably not be a good strategy. I would probably need some kind of surgery or really, really good Mission Impossible mask to totally look like a convincing copy of the real president by sight, right?
0: Yeah, like even if you, you look at at professional lookalikes of various celebrities or politicians... Uh, You could maybe make a case for some of these individuals uh, having a a, a good shot at getting in there. You know, like their impression and their appearance is spot on. And maybe if everyone was just a little bit lax, they could wander in. But generally, we we just have so many caveats uh, that we're looking at to identify somebody.
1: Well, right. But that's because we are humans and it's because we identify by sight and by sound primarily. Mm -hmm. Now, what if I didn't actually smell like the president? Would that matter? probably not right
0: well I guess it depended on what you smelled like and it depends on how, how strong all the other sensory deceptions were mm-hmm. you know because it was one of those things where your hair didn't look quite right but then also you smelled say like kale like a, just a strong uh-huh. kale odor and they might say hmm, well, the president has never smelled like kale before right and then you know now that i think about it the hair looks a little weird today and then they said st- then it's like a uh an avalanche of uh of, of revelation and they st- say oh it's actually an alien visitor
1: <laughs> is that what i am in this example now yeah when did
0: I, I become an alien i don't know I did, it just got it, it spiraled out of control and now i'm imagining a kale based um, alien organism that uh, impersonates world leaders take me to your leader has become make me your leader yeah
1: uh Well, so, yeah, so we've identified that sight and sound are the main things humans would go by, but h- different animals go on different types of senses. And so if you're an insect, a good way to get access to the insect White House might be something other than looking right. It might be smelling right, and it might be sounding right.
0: Okay, well, what would be an insect world uh, equivalence of the White House, a highly protected uh, stronghold, really? Uh, the kind of place where, generally, to break into it, you would think you'd have to pull some real Mission Impossible shenanigans. Oh, it's got to be an ant colony, right? Yeah,
1: the ant colony is the fortress or the castle of the insect world. It's got powerful resource distribution channels. It's got powerful protective systems. It's got you know armies to protect you and do your bidding
0: and selfless, uh, selfless soldiers in its service. Yeah, you know they talk about the secret servicemen will take a bullet for the president. But a worker ant will definitely uh, take a bullet for the queen, for the colony.
1: Totally. Gaining access to the benefits of an ant colony without having to give anything back to the ant colony, that would be the insect equivalent of hitting the jackpot. Mm-hmm. It Fort is, Knox. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the call was coming from inside the colony the whole time. And there is a species of butterfly that is an example of... There are many types of insects, actually. I believe thousands of types of insects that have evolved to parasitize ant colonies through the brood parasitism method. And so there's a species of butterfly that's one of these insects called the Mountain Alcon Blue or Maculinia rebelli. Maculinia parasitizes a type of Eurasian ant called Myrmica schenki or schenki, S-C-H-E-N-C-K-I. And the, the caterpillar stage of this Maculinia butterfly uses chemical signatures to convince the ants that it is an ant larva. So they're like, oh, one of our ant larva is out here. We need to take it inside, get it safe. At which point, so the ants carry the caterpillar back to the nest and take care of it. But it gets better. A 2009 study by Francesca Barbaro et al. in Science found that M- Myrmica queens partially demonstrate who they are to the workers in their colony by making distinctive acoustic sounds, quote, that elicit increased benevolent responses from workers reinforcing their supreme social status. So this parasite is able to convince the ant colony through this deceptive tactic and through making this type of noise by it's it's like a friction based noise that it makes with rubbing its body parts together, Mm -hmm. that it is not only welcome in the colony. It's not only a larva that should be taken care of, but it's a queen and it's got to be given ultimate deference status resources and all that. And this works so well that the parasitic butterfly puts on the vast majority of its adult weight while being fed by its ant servants.
0: Oh, wow. That That is quite a coup. This would be just like if you showed up at the gates of the White House and you sounded like the president, you smelled like the president, and then they took you in and they started feeding you all of the president's favorite foods.
1: Right. So this is an amazing example. And it's funny. So we've been doing this anthropomorphizing thing, uh, because I think it often makes these examples even more amazing and funnier to try to think of what the human analogy would be. But anytime there's stuff about, for example, you know, weird invertebrate courtship behaviors, which we're going to get to in a bit, uh, or anything like that, people want to say, hey, maybe that's why and then insert something about real human behaviors mm-hmm. there. And to be clear, it's not why. Like, it's fun to anthropomorphize these examples just because it can be funny. But, you know, we're talking about other types of organisms, birds, arachnids, insects, which are not close relatives of ours distantly removed in evolutionary history, and it's pretty safe to assume that their behaviors are independent of ours, so this extends to all the things we'll be talking about today. Some of them might be really interesting or funny to consider when you port them up to some kind of human analogy, but we should remember that these animals aren't humans, we humans are not these animals, and their behavior doesn't necessarily or even likely explain our behavior
0: and vice versa. I agree 100%. Do do not take any inspiration from these animals. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will dive into the world of cuttlefish. All right, we're back. So You've
1: you've promised me cuttlefish.
0: Yes, and I will deliver cuttlefish. I'm, I'm a big cuttlefish fan. If there is a video or a GIF, Involving cuttlefish. If I'm in an aquarium and there are cuttlefish, then I, I am definitely going to stare long and deep into their their pulsating uh, coloration, the the, the the way they just kind of float there like an apparition. They're mm-hmm. just gorgeous, beautiful, holy blameless creatures. Oh, we're back to the blameless, right? Yeah. Well, there is it's something angelic about the cuttlefish. Cuttlefish are your dogs, kind of. Yeah, I, I don't have to clean up after them though. <laughs> but but yeah. I do, I do see them with a certain amount of purity. How, how do you feel about the nautilus compared to cuttlefish? I mean, the nautilus is, is cool. Who, who doesn't love the, the vaulted nautilus? But and the, the, the cuttlefish is, is far more elegant. Okay. Take me there. All right. So cuttlefish are typically loners. But uh, every year they do have to uh, abandon their solitary lives and they have to gather together to mate. And then you see, you see a lot of behavior at this point that is less cute. Uh, You know, that's, uh, at least to our human eyes. Because you have a very similar scenario going on uh, here. You have males staking out smaller females and they're expressing both their desire to mate with the females and their desire to fight off rivals. Uh, And they do a lot of this through a a complex flash of colors, a changing of their shapes. One of the the many tropes of science fiction and fantasy is, of course, shape-shifting organisms, Mm -hmm. things that can change their shape uh, to deceive. Uh, uh, In in this case, uh, we definitely see the change of shape and the change of coloration as a way to communicate with each other. Um, uh, It's kind of a language of intent. And these changes, they happen in a, like a fraction of a second. And it does at times just seem pulsating and hypnotic. And there there have been studies that have looked at, at even a sort of hypnotic approach to capturing prey, mm-hmm. uh, just throwing the prey off with some sort of complex coloration pattern. Uh, again, there's almost something supernatural about seeing one of these organisms. Sort of paralysis by like baffling sensory overload. Right. Yeah. But, but when males encounter each other, uh, basically they're just they're flashing their colors, uh, saying, hey, don't mess with me, don't try and get my mate, because I will fight you. And then, of course, they end up actually fighting each other, lashing out at each other with, with flashes of their yawning tentacles. They latch onto each other, oh. they tug, they grapple, they roll around uh, for dominance. It's dramatic, uh, but, uh, but uh, the, the physical violence itself is the last resort. Mm-hmm. Now this whole stare down phase that occurs is really interesting, especially when we're talking about deception, because according to a 2017 study from the Marine Biological Laboratory, uh, It may match up with the mutual assessment model of game theory. Okay, what's that? So in this, each individual considers their next action based on their adversary's ability and their own ability to prevail instead of just proceeding based on an evaluation of your own strengths.
1: So you're like constantly measuring yourself against your opponent.
0: Yeah, so one cuttlefish is saying, hey, this is me and this is what I'm going to do the other kettlefish is saying the same thing and it's it's about who is going to back down i mean that's why this behavior evolves because it is a it is a way to give your opponent every opportunity to back down before physical violence has to ensue which can result in in damage death etc
1: yeah. You know, one thing that's worth pointing out is that backing down happens a whole lot in the natural world. Yes. Like a lot of times you see rival dominance displays between aggressive or territorial males or something like that. And all kinds of species, different
0: families, you'll very often see an attempt to avoid actual fighting. Right. Now, we have to bring in the human element here because everyone's probably thinking of, of some very um, cliché tropes. Of, uh, of of men in like 1950s beach movies trying to pick up women, uh, so imagine a muscle dude on the beach.
1: Muscle dude on the beach. Yeah,
0: tr- trying to pick up the ladies, and then there's another another muscle dude, and maybe they start uh, like doing a muscle showdown. You know, where they're kind of uh, <laughs>
1: just doing Mr. Universe poses. Yeah, in the different sand. flexes and all,
0: yeah. um, or just generally, you know. Busting out a bunch of uh, of macho BS. Okay. So in the human realm, we kn- we 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 know just if from nothing else from our stories that sometimes an individual is bluffing. Sometimes they are putting on a show of potential physical violence or dominance, and they're not going to be able to back that up with, say, actual fighting skill or a or an actual willingness to engage in physical violence.
1: Right. Like, what do you think when somebody's like, "I'm a black belt in karate." Yeah. Do you believe them? Oh. Do, do real Do real people who have actual martial <laughs> arts training say that very much?
0: I don't know. Of course, that's a great example, too, though, because someone could very well be a black belt in karate, but does that mean they really have the, the – the I mean, are they actually trained or are they just saying it? And even if they are trained, are they going to back it up? Are they going to be willing to actually spring into action? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we could go back and forth on, on the, the human angle of that all day. But – Where it applies here is you have to ask the question, well, are there cases where a cuttlefish lies? Does a cuttlefish say, hey, I'm big and scary and I can fight you? Mm -hmm. I mean, to a certain extent they are because they are positioning their body and sort of making themselves look threatening. But a 2016 study published in uh, Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology, they argued that cuttlefish do not bluff. When they signal agitation through this colorful display, they are really agitated. Mm-hmm. Uh, displays uh, reliably predict the chances of any physical aggression. Now, that being said, they again, they did probably evolve to communicate varying levels of aggression to give their rival multiple chances to back down, but it seems to be an honest display. Okay, so they really are a black belt in karate. Yes, yeah. They, they have not developed the technology to lie about their karate training. <laughs> now, at the same time... With cuttlefish, we do see an an amazing example of of mimicry in this mating, uh, because you know what do you do if you can't match up to these aggressive displays? Right. Well. Fortunately for the smaller males, the the cuttlefish in game isn't completely dominated by brash displays of power and these aquatic wrestling matches, um, because again they are intelligent creatures. They have to be to control all of these uh, uh, these various um, uh, coloration patterns and the and the the uh, the inner workings of their body, uh, and they have a talent, a natural talent for disguise. So what we see happening is in order to get to the closely guarded females, some of these smaller males will engage in, uh, in a kind of gender dancing. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll scrunch up their tentacles, they'll change their colors, and, the, and suddenly they don't look like a rival at all. They look like a female cuttlefish.
1: Oh, okay. So this would be going the route of trying to make yourself appear harmless.
0: Well, not not even – it goes beyond harmless. They may even look desirable. The, uh-huh. the male will not only let them in and think, oh, here's another female I can mate with. Sometimes they will try and mate with the disguised cuttlefish. Uh-huh. So the, the, the sneaky cuttlefish, the, the gender-dancing cuttlefish, sneaks in, mates with the female, and then makes an escape. Uh, And then the female cuttlefish doesn't play favorites either. She fertilizes her egg with the sperm of both males. And uh, and I should note that it's not merely a proximity game here. It's not just a matter of whichever male gets closest is going to be the one to mate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because uh, the female is going to reject something like 70% of her suitors, according to a 2006 marine biological laboratory study. And then this carries on into just the evolutionary advantage. Because... Essentially, there is there is a survival advantage for cuttlefish in general to have not only the genes of of big scary cuttlefish right. uh, succeeding, but also the genes of stealthy sneaky cuttlefish. I think it's interesting. It's like imagining a Dungeons and Dragons party. You you can't just have barbarians. You know, you've you got need to, a thief. Yeah, you got to have a rogue. You got to have a thief. Somebody's got to do the sneaking, right? Because uh, um, otherwise, how are you going to best the dragon? So anyway, that's one of my favorite examples of. uh Mimicry, deception uh, within a species. Uh, And anytime I get to talk about cuttlefish, uh, I'm definitely going to go for it.
1: Well, I want to go to another example of deception in mating practices and courtship. Okay. Uh, So I want to talk about the deadbeat spider (laughs) suitor. So there is a behavior that has evolved multiple times independently in different animal groups, especially in spiders and insects known as nuptial gift-giving. And in these cases, an animal, generally a male, that wants to mate with a female of his species needs to show up with a gift. Often a piece of nutritious food. This can get pretty weird mm-hmm. because, for example, insects like some crickets and moths will not go get you a piece of food, but they will out of their bodies generate a nutritional spermatophore. So imagine like an ampule of sperm cells for a, a human analogy cushioned in the middle of a delicious lasagna. Mm-hmm. So they bring you the lasagna, say like, here you go, it's for you. There, there is some genetic material in there mm-hmm. and I hope we can produce offspring together.
0: This just became a very dangerous episode to, uh, uh, to listen to while eating. But, uh, but, but no, if we strip away all of our human complexities here, this is just a matter of, of energy and economics, uh, it's going to take a certain amount of energy to uh, to produce the, the eggs, to produce the young. Mm-hmm. And the male is saying, well, here, here is some energy. Exactly. I will give you this along with my genetic material.
1: Yeah. So in reality, this lasagna is the spermatophylax. It's a ball of gelatinous goo made by the male's body, which surrounds the sperm ampule, and it's rich with proteins and other nutrients. And in some cases, the quality of the nutrition in the spermatophore can help the female decide which males are worth mating with, right? Like a healthier, better potential mate is going to produce a better, more nutritious spermatophylax or or other structure on the spermatophore. So in general, this gift giving can be good for the male because a big nutritious meal for his mate often means a better future for the offspring offspring that they're about to have together, just like you were saying. Sometimes a male who wants to mate needs to bring the female a dead animal. So I want to talk about a spider called Pisara mirabilis, the nursery web spider. This is a species of spider known for courtship feeding and male nuptial gift giving. When a male approaches a female with the intention to mate, he often brings with him a nuptial gift of an insect cocooned in silk. Then, while the female is inspecting or even trying to eat the gift, the male mates with her, which he does by using his pedipalps to deposit sperm in her sperm storage organs on the underside of the abdomen. Now, it's possible for a male spider to initiate mating without the gift. It's just a lot less likely to be successful, and he's more likely to get rejected or even worse, and we can discuss the worse in a minute. (laughs) So far, no deception, right? This is just like, it's a gift-giving relationship. This is an evolved relationship to help uh, facilitate the, the mating process, to help the male get more nutrition for his future offspring. So it seems to work out fine.
0: Yeah, very businesslike, very professional.
1: But what if you're a male nursery web spider and you can't find a juicy fly to give to the female across the way? Or maybe what if you're a male nursery web spider and you found a fly but you got so excited that you sucked all the fluids out of it yourself? <laughs> What do you do then?
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like you should die out, right? I mean, because you don't have you don't have what it takes to to, to win over the female.
1: Well, maybe you just need a little bit of deception. Hmm. So, in a 2011 paper in BMC Evolutionary Biology by Maria J Albo et al, uh, the authors studied the phenomenon of spider nuptial gift giving under exactly this scenario. So there's an interesting observation. I mentioned that the male nursery web spider often wraps the gift in silk. Why does he wrap the gift in silk? Why not just bring it straight up?
0: That's because it's easy to initially just think, well, it's wrapped in the silk anyway because that's what spiders do with things that they've trapped. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily the case here. Right. Like they're wrapping it for some other reason.
1: Right. So wrapping a dead fly in silk, this is one answer, helps make it easier for the spider to carry. To, yep. to carry it, to handle it and control it, whether the spider is gripping it with the uh, chelicerae or the feet claws. And this not only makes it easier to carry, it also makes it harder for the female to grab the gift and run away with it without mating. So it's easier <laughs> for the male to maintain a grip on it. Sometimes the female tries to do that. She'll try to grab it and run off.
0: Ha. Huh. You know, I wonder if that's ever involved, uh, uh, or I wonder if that's ever part of our own gift giving. You know, we never think about it consciously but like I'm really gonna wrap the heck out of this Christmas present because I want I want the moment to last as long as possible uh-huh. you know I don't want the uh, recipient to just instantly have the gift and then they're off uh, installing batteries in it
1: that's interesting
0: uh,
1: <laughs> I do think we need to remember as we were saying earlier not to not to take literal anthropomorphizing no 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 but
0: but, but it was like a similar like a stalling tactic like the yeah. nece- the, the the necessity involved here is I don't want the the recipient to have the actual gift too quickly. Right. Because then I am forgotten. Exactly. So here's another answer though. At
1: least one study found that relatively brighter gifts were more attractive to females, Mm. and so perhaps a silk-wrapped gift looks like a higher-value piece of food because it's got greater reflectivity of light, and this means the gift-bringer has a better shot at at success just because it looks like a more nutritious gift.
0: Okay, just better packaging,
1: better marketing. Third option. The authors note that a possible advantage of silk-wrapping is as follows, quote, Male spiders have a unique opportunity for gift manipulation through the gift-wrapping trait. For example, by preventing female assessment of the gift content.
0: Hmm.
1: Nice and euphemistic. But what that means is wrapping it in silk helps the spider trick you with a fake gift. (laughs) So Pissara mirabilis is notable because reports have indicated that sometimes males show up for mating with this silk-wrapped package. But what's in the package is empty. It's a drained arthropod skeleton, usually, or okay. maybe just some pieces of plant parts. Uh, to quote from the study, "quote: Dissection of sixteen gifts carried uh, by males in the field showed that sixty-two percent contained fresh prey, so good, nutritious gifts, mm-hmm. while the remaining thirty-eight percent contained empty arthropod skeletons, i.e., prey already sucked out, probably by the male itself. So." Uh, Almost 40 percent of the time, the male who shows up with a gift has killed an insect, eaten all the good parts, taken the skeleton, wrapped it up in silk and said, she'll never figure this
0: out. Uh, you know, we, we see a lot of from the human perspective, jerky behavior on the part of insects and arachnids. But this is really jerky. This yeah, is just, this, this is, is deadbeat behavior. Yeah.
1: If it were humans. But, you know, it's, it's spiders. So the experiment in question uh, in this paper I mentioned, they tested mating success in the following four groups. You had a protein-enriched fly gift, so that's like a, a fly that's even better than a normal fly nutrition-wise, a regular fly gift, a worthless gift, or a male who shows up with no gift. Okay, And here were the results – The males that brought fake gifts got about the same amount of mating success as the males who brought real nutritional gifts. Both of these groups had a lot more success than males who showed up with no gift. This suggests there's a strong pressure on gift bringing that sometimes selects for males to get fake gifts and bring them along. Now, on the other hand, males who brought worthless fake gifts tended to get their mating sessions cut short sooner than males who brought real gifts. And this leads to less sperm deposition. So there is a cost for males who show up with fakes. Essentially, it looks like if you bring a present, whether it's real or fake, you're more likely to get to mate at all. But if the present is fake, you're probably going to get cut off sooner. Hmm. Here's another question. How did this kind of nuptial gift-giving relationship evolve in the first place, right? Like, why in this species does the male show up with a gift, and why would the male fake it? To answer that question, uh, researchers Maria J. Albo, who was the lead researcher on the last paper I mentioned, and Soren Toft performed an experiment, which they published in the Royal Society Biology Letters in 2016. And so the main existing hypothesis to explain the origin and maintenance of food gifts during mating was that for females, the benefit is obvious. It's the extra nutrition you get without any extra work, and it helps increase fecundity. And for males, it was thought that the possible benefits would be twofold. Number one, that it's a parental investment, which increases the number or the quality of offspring. And it also is a mating effort. It allows the male to obtain access to mating opportunities. Both of these factors could actually play a role. The authors write, quote, a third hypothesis applying to predatory and cannibalistic species proposes that nuptial gifts may act as physical protection against sexual cannibalism Ah. from aggressive females. Uh, And they said this hypothesis at the time of their paper hadn't yet received any support. But they were about to demonstrate some support for it. So first they collected a bunch of spiders before their maturity molt, and then once the spiders reached adulthood, the females were sorted into groups of well-fed and poorly-fed spiders. And then they staged mating encounters between uh, females and males and recorded whether the males were carrying a nuptial gift with them or not. And they recorded several possible outcomes. There was successful mating, there was rejection of the male, there was cannibalism, where the female eats the male, and then there was gift stealing. What we mentioned earlier, where the female grabs the gift and then runs away with it without mating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so females that did not cannibalize were tested again on the following days up to eight times. And the results were interesting because you'd guess that the poorly fed females would cannibalize the males more often. Right. They're really hungry. So they're, they'd be more likely to eat the male spider who wants to mate.
0: Yeah. She needs the energy there is energy in the, in the male's body and the male has outlived his usefulness.
1: Exactly. Uh, and that, conversely, uh, well-fed females would not bother eating potential mates. But they found this was not true. There was no statistically significant relationship between how hungry the females were and how likely they were to eat the males. Instead, cannibalism was more powerfully determined by whether the male brought a gift uh. or not. They said, quote, Females staged with no-gift males were on average more than six times as cannibalistic as females staged with gift-carrying males. Of 75 females staged with no-gift males, 15 or 19 percent cannibalized their partner, whereas only one of 28 females or 3.6 percent cannibalized gift-carrying males. So the males who show up with gifts tend not to get cannibalized.
0: Always bring a gift. Uh, That's what we, we can learn from the spiders here.
1: Well, but here's where the fake gifts come in. The authors write, quote, The use of fake gifts by males may thus be a way to get access to receptive females, but considering the results of the present paper, it may also serve to reduce the risk of cannibalistic attack.
0: Huh. Well, you know, maybe so.
1: It makes the male look a little bit less like a deadbeat if he's if he might get eaten if he doesn't show up with a gift. Yeah,
0: I mean, he has his genetic programming is I must mate, and if if he mates, (laughs) there's a good chance he's going to be killed and eaten. So it's a it's about survival, really. Mm -hmm. It's just about well, maybe if I just wrap up this. Uh, this piece of dirt and, and hand it to her, then that'll that'll give me just enough time to escape with my life.
1: Yeah. Now, I should add that among nursery web spiders, sexual cannibalism is, is not super common. Mm-hmm. So even the males who showed up without a gift didn't get eaten like all the time. It wasn't, uh, you know, just if you don't have a gift, you will get eaten. But the chances, even though small, were much higher than if you show up with a gift. I want to add one more layer of deception in the nursery web spider mating Sometimes in the nursery web spiders, males play dead during this process. So it's like a whole other thing going on. Uh, from uh, a paper by Albo in 2011, sometimes during mating, the female nursery web spider is going to attempt, as we've said, to grab the nuptial gift and run away with it. And sometimes if the female attempts to terminate copulation early to run away with the gift, the male will resort to the trick of thanatosis or playing dead. Hmm. So the death feigning behavior involves going rigid and stretching out the legs and grabbing tight hold of the gift he brought with his chelicerae. So while she's trying to run off with the gift... He's dead and clutching the gift, so she has to drag this apparently dead male spider along with her, and then once she gets tired and stops moving, the male revives and then tries to mate
0: again. (laughs) I mean, it's really almost kind of comic. Yeah.
1: Now, the nursery web spiders, I should point out, uh, are not the only animals who have been noted bringing fake nuptial gifts. The male dance fly will sometimes bring empty, worthless gifts to a potential mate. Uh, and there is another spider species called or ornata, and some researchers found that 70 percent of males in this species tried to initiate mating with worthless gifts like these same drained leftover prey skeletons. The worst gift of the arachnid world.
0: That this is all fascinating because when you start breaking it down, really, and when you try as much as as possible to cut out the the, the human layer of uh, interpretation here, right? You you see just how these things emerge. It's just right. like a, a like an like an economic byproduct of these these complex mating relationships.
1: Yeah, well, it's one of these things where there's like a deep economy of animal behavior that we would never even understand unless there were people doing these detailed studies. I mean, there's so much to consider in the costs and benefits of how you bring a dead thing wrapped up in silk or whether you choose to do so or not.
0: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we will discuss some Femme All right, we're back. So one of my favorite... Favorite acts of animal deception, Uh, and if anyone has seen any of the old uh, Monster Science videos uh, that that I did, then you're you're already familiar with this one. Uh, But I'm going to add a a little extra to it as well. Uh, But but I find it I find it very much like the idea of a beautiful vampire luring human victims in with the promise of sex, only to kill them and drain them of their precious blood. Uh, Only this example is even cooler, and it comes from the world of lightning bugs. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you have a few different varieties of lightning bugs uh, out there. But the one we're talking about here... Hey, if I can interrupt, lightning bugs seem like the most innocent
1: of bugs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talking about animal innocence, my dog is innocent, cuttlefish are innocent. Lightning
0: bugs are so sweet. Yeah, just something that children go around trapping in a jar and then... Hopefully releasing, you know, they're, yeah. they're this, this kind of magical creature uh, afloat in the wilderness.
1: They're, they're the magic of summertime when you're a child in the twilight.
0: Yes. Now, of course, all that, uh, that, that, uh, that lighting uh, that they're doing out there, uh, the little patterns they're forming, this has to do with mating. Mm-hmm. And then this is where the female Photuris lightning bug enters the picture. Okay. Also known as the femme fatale lightning bug. So what she does is she goes out there and she mimics the flash signals of a mating female Photinus lightning bug, hmm. which is a different species, but related. Now for
1: Photurus and Photinus, yes.
0: So the fimfetal is Photurus, mm-hmm. and then she is mimicking uh, the, the 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 lighting displays of a Photinus. Okay. All right. So the thing here is she doesn't want to mate with Photinus males. She wants to kill them and consume their nutrients, especially this uh, defensive steroid, uh, that they have in their bodies called Lusobophagans, which provides protection against predatory jumping spiders. Huh. So the femfatal bug, she can't produce this steroid on her own. She has to seduce and kill, uh, these, these other lightning bugs in order to acquire it. And in fact, she attracts males of four different species of lightning bugs with, di- with distinctively different flashed responses. Uh-huh. Now, this behavior was first observed in 1965. Uh, it was suspected prior to that. But for the most part, it's only fairly recently that we've been able to understand it. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, you might wonder, though, hey, what do you do if you are a male Photurus lightning bug? Uh, what did they do to attract their mate when their females are out there preying on the males of another species? Right. Well, according to a 1980 study published in Science, the males have their own mating displays, uh, you know, that are that are key to their species. But they'll also mimic the male mating displays of other species in order to attract their own females. So, so think about this. Anyone who's seen uh, From Dust Till Dawn, you know, Selma Hayek's vampire queen character? Okay. Okay, so um, imagine her. She's out there luring bikers into her deadly embrace. Meanwhile, you have Cheech Marin's character, Chet, who's another vampire, uh, say he wants to mate. What's he going to do to get her attention? She's going around uh, tearing bikers apart. Maybe he has to disguise himself as a hapless biker In order to attract her attention.
1: Wow, that's like that's some Matrix stuff. That's several several levels down.
0: Yeah, it's 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 just it it, it can sound dysfunctional, I guess. But you know, it's you know, every every couple has their thing. But uh, the crazy thing here is that, as best I can tell, and based on uh, a couple of the papers I looked at, there's no known parallel in other animal communicative systems. Hmm. It's it's just this 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 weird scenario. Of um of the the parasitic lover mm-hmm. and her parasitic mate, uh, and and the, and the male having to actually pretend to be her prey in order to mate with her, it's phenomenal. I love it. That is amazing. All right, so for the the next animal deceiver here, uh, I want to talk about a creature that that has really become kind of an icon of. Uh, of horror and doom Mm -hmm. and that is the death's head hawk moth oh this is one from silence of the lambs right yeah most famous for showing up in thomas harris's the silence of the lambs and the film adaptation so to refresh uh serial killer jamie gum places the insect in the throats of his victims and it seems like a fitting calling card right because on one level we have this this theme of metamorphosis he's trying to transform himself. Uh And here is a a creature that is defined by its transformation. Okay. Uh, But it's also nice and thematic because the moths feature coloration on their backs that hauntingly look like a human skull.
1: Yeah, it looks like... uh... On the day that that
0: animal was created, the gods were really into Megadeth. Yeah, yeah, they they're very gothic looking, and and it's, it's people have been noticing this for ages. There are African myths that involve the death's head hawk moth as being a you know a a, a, a token of doom. There, you also have it showing up in the works of John Keats. It shows up in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula sends them uh, to Renfield. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, they're just really cool looking moths. They're pretty big too. Uh, there's one variety known as the, uh, Archerontia sticks, uh, which can grow to between 3 and 5.11 inches in wingspan. And they're also the world's fastest moth at, uh, 30 miles per hour or 48 kilometers per hour. Wow. So they're, they're pretty impressive species, uh, even if you don't, you know, count the little miniature Skull, or at least abstract skull, on their backs. Mm-hmm. Now you, you might notice that that name was kind of interesting. Archerontia Styx, uh, named after not one but two rivers in Hell. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then there's another one, uh, Archerontia Atropos, uh, named uh, for one of the rivers in Hell, but then also Atropos, one of the three Fates in Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. So they're just they're just really uh, death metally from uh, just throughout their appearance, their their official scientific names. Uh, but it goes, it goes well beyond that. Because you, if you, if you get past their just basic appearance mm-hmm. and, uh, and a lot of the superstitions about them, you might ask, well, what does a, what does a hawk moth eat? What does a death's head hawk moth hunger for?
1: Uh, I would guess, I don't know, does it like desiccated skeletons that are being taken as gifts by all these nursery web spiders?
0: You'd think, yeah, I think it would be more fitting if they, if they fed on carrion. I eat the bones of insects. But they don't. They're like poo. They're like poo bear. They love honey. Oh, for
1: a second I thought you meant they like poo. No,
0: no, they are like poo the bear. Uh-huh. It just as poo bear likes honey, they love honey. In fact, it's pretty much all they eat. The delicious foodstuffs of the bees. That's all they want. Okay, well how do they get it? Well, the, this is where it gets interesting because we come back to the similar scenario with the ants. Sure, that hive is full of delicious honey.
1: But the bees don't make it for moths. They right. make it for people right no wait a minute no, no. they make it for other bees they make
0: it yeah and they protect it fiercely they have stingers it is a dangerous place to go uh I, i'm reminded of an old donald duck cartoon i don't know if you ever saw this one growing up but donald dresses up like a giant bee <laughs> to go into the beehive to collect the honey does it work it does until chippendale um like screw with his plan and oh, then no. lots of stinging and quacking uh, ensue uh but it's basically what's going on here. There's 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 some form of mimicry going on with the death's head moth uh, when it enters the hive. Basically, it it waltzes in. It hangs out. It eats honey, and then it leaves at its own leisure. And it's only rarely stung by the bees and seems to be only weakly affected by the venom. Uh, actually entering the hive seems to be the only real choke point in the plan. This is when they receive the most attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once they in, they're in, they tend to stay still on a comb while they feed, and nothing really bothers them.
1: Well, how do they achieve that?
0: Well, for a while, it was a mystery. So some theorized that it was the creature's ability to squeak. Huh. And this is kind of a call back to where the, the, we were talking earlier with the with the use of sound yeah, the, in the ant colony. The butterfly that ma- that sings a song that says I'm the ant queen. Right. So, uh these uh, head moths have been observed to squeak upon arrival at a hive and the theory is that they might mimic the queen's call for worker bees to freeze. Plus, the squeaks may be adapted to particular types of bees, but some researchers aren't as fond of this theory, and at the very least, they they tend to believe that there is there is more going on than mere uh, sound. Mm-hmm. Now, as an as an aside, it is interesting when you start looking at how they make that sound. So they apparently modified their their sucking over time to better slurp all of that viscous honey. Okay. Uh, so once these uh, the, these modifications were in place. Uh, according to German researcher Gunnar Brehm, uh, they were able to develop an ability to produce squeaking noises by inflating or deflating the pharynx or the epipharynx at the base of the proboscis. They emit this sound uh, also to ward off predators, and it seems to work so well that they have very few additional defensive capabilities, except for some thorns on their legs. Uh, and, and I've seen the the process of creating this sound uh, compared to the playing of an accordion. Whoa. And then there's an there's another theory, and this one is that the death's head marking resembles a worker bee's face. What? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, that one doesn't seem like a very popular theory at all. I'm no uh, entomologist, but it it it's a little too Donald Duck. I feel it's yeah. Like Donald Duck puts on a fake stinger and paints himself uh, yellow and black uh-huh. so he fools the bees. It it seems like it's on that level. But no, more recent researcher reveals that they excrete an odor that contains the same compounds present in honeybee odor. Uh, and this is, again, something we see in various ant mimics in ant colonies as well. Produce the appropriate smell, and you have a real leg up on surviving your infiltration of the enemy compound.
1: Just like we could probably do a whole episode or series of episodes on uh, brood parasitism in birds, we could probably do a whole episode or series of episodes on ant mimics.
0: Yes, yeah. Because they're no- actually, when we were putting this episode together... And we were selecting organisms. I had originally selected another ant mimic. Yeah. And then when, when you told me you were doing an ant mimic, I was like, oh, well, I, I should do the death said moth because I've, I've wanted to, to research this, uh, this creature for years. Uh, but, yeah, ant mimics are
1: so cool. But this is another example of, like the ant mimic, something that exploits the
0: teamwork of a social species. Indeed. Now, of course, this probably raises the question for many listeners, what's the deal with that skull? Like right, and I should drive home that if you look at different images of the skull, it, it, sometimes you have to squint a little bit, or you know, it's sometimes that you have to realize that it is an abstract skull at best. And aside from the worker bee face theory, and the and the general trend in mimicry to have something resembling eyes or a face somewhere else on your anatomy, mm-hmm. there's not actually a lot out there on the purpose of the skull. And I think part of it is on us. I mean, we as humans, we're obsessed with our own countenance. We're obsessed with death. We we we, we see our faces <laughs> everywhere, uh-huh. and we obsess about uh, our mortality. And then we see I, this, I see skulls in my breakfast cereal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we kind of love skulls. It's 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 what we're into. And then this thing on this uh, this moth's back kind of looks like a skull, and we just go way overboard with it. Uh, you know, we uh, to quote T. S. Eliot, we see the skull beneath the skin. And uh, that seems to be the best explanation I can find uh, thus far for the uh, Death's Head Moth. If anyone out there has found any additional scholarship on this question, do share it with us. I would love to read it.
1: Well, let's just say that it's a design to accommodate the needs of future thriller writers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or or to distract us from the the, the other uh, aspects of the the species. Because that's the thing. We we think of the Death's Head Moth and we just think of that. The, the poster for the silence of the lambs mm-hmm. or you know or some other usage of the the creature to, to portray a sense of uh, of weird doom uh, but they're they're a fascinating organism in their own right their, their ability to 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 conquer the colony and uh, and and fatten themselves with honey and uh, and get out without anybody uh, even really noticing that they were there and then they and they can squeak very few moths can squeak.
1: Uh, I've never heard a moth squeak in my life.
0: Uh, Neither have I. But apparently there are a few other varieties. Uh, The the, the materials I I looked at were primarily concerned with the Death's uh, Head hawk moth, but but there are some other squeaky moths out there.
1: Man, it is always a little bit disturbing when an invertebrate makes audible sounds. Oh, yeah,
0: like with hissing cockroaches. Yeah, Mm -hmm. or
1: like uh, if you've seen those killer spider movies where the killer spider squeals. Or screams or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard a spider make actual noise in real
0: life. Or really any summer day in the, in the South, um, especially, you walk out and you hear this, this thunderous sound. Yeah. And at times it's easy to forget, oh, that is the that is the roar of untold insect legions in our midst. Yeah. Rubbing their hard little parts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there you have it. Just a taste of some of the deception, some of the mimicry out there in the animal kingdom. If you liked this uh, selection, let us know because we can totally come back and cover some more fascinating organisms in a future episode.
1: And I want to stress yet again, as fun as it is to anthropomorphize these examples and imagine what it would be like if a human tried to do this, I stress yet again, do not try to use any of these examples to explain
0: what you think humans do in life. Yes, do not paint the face of uh, of of a bank employee on your back. And walk try to walk into the vault. Uh, it's not gonna work. <laughs>
1: that's probably not gonna work. No, more specifically I'm trying to think about like you see people do this, like you'll see a study comes out that talks about some mating behavior in some animal, and then people will be like, oh, that's why men are like, or oh, that's why <laughs> women are like when when you're dating. And mm-hmm. it's it's just not.
0: Well we can't help but compare ourselves to, to animals. Yeah. And and there there's a certain amount of fun to be had there. And it I mean it can be enlightening. We've been doing it as long as we've had human culture yeah. Uh, but on the other hand yeah at, at times it's, it's like you miss the whole point of the study yeah. you just took the fun part of the study and went wild with it, and you're you're missing uh, the uh, the insight into actually what's actually happening yeah. with the mating behaviors of this organism.
1: Yeah. What's interesting about it is what it says about that particular animal's niche and way of life.
0: Yeah. In the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you will find all the podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
1: And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can do that through email. Uh, Big shout out, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to email us, our address is BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. I'm sorry.